nau mai hoki mai ki te puna wa paho o te awa o pāwaho. Kia ora and welcome to the podcast of the River o Pāwaho. Today we are joined by Murray Robertson, the legend as we continue our series in Colossians. We're looking at Colossians 2 verses 4 to 15. We hope that our Lord Jesus speaks to you in and through this beautiful, beautiful teaching. You're doing the series on Colossians, so uh, we've got as far as Colossians chapter 2 from verse 6, I'll read the passage, and I want to talk about the gospel and our values, so these the words of the Apostle Paul. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith at the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I think it would be good if we prayed together. Lord, we want to thank you for these words of the Apostle written so long ago that speak to a world very different to our own in some ways, but similar in others. And as we reflect on this this morning, we want to pray for your insight and wisdom and hear what you're saying to us through your spirit in Jesus name Amen Someone has said that uh, this particular passage in Colossians uh, is a little bit like listening to someone having a phone conversation when you're in the room and you don't know who they're talking to and so you hear one half of a conversation you don't know who they're talking to and you don't know what the other person is saying to them Because there was a problem in Colossae. When Paul had arrived, there was this other philosophy or teaching or something that was seducing the people who'd become followers of Jesus. And so Paul addresses this in this particular passage. Now he starts off giving thanks and reminding them of the greatness of Christ. And he carries on with this really in verse 6. So then just as you receive 
Christ Jesus as Lord. Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. He introduces another thought here. It's not just a matter of growing in, in our faith in Christ. It's to be overflowing with thankfulness. Because I think sometimes you can think, you know, you hear exhortations to grow in the faith. And you think, oh, man, you know, this is more effort and more in it. And he's saying, hey, it's not all hard yakka. You know, this is picture a community that was overflowing with thankfulness. It would be irresistible. You know, people think, man, I want to be part of a community like that. And then in verse 8, this is the key verse in this passage. He, he says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Which is great, but we've got no idea what he's talking about. And that's the problem with this. You you hear one side of a conversation. There's, there's the possibility of these new believers in Christ being seduced by something. But the problem is we don't know what it is. He talks about a hollow and deceptive philosophy and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. People haven't been lacking in coming forth with ideas about what the problem was. Some people think, well, maybe it was like the situation in Galatia where it was Judaism. And these Judaizers came along and said, look, you've got to become, if you want to be a real follower, you've got to get circumcised and keep the Old Testament law and so on. But it doesn't sound like that. You wouldn't describe Judaism as being captive to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. So other people have wondered, is it a kind of spiritual cult turned up in Colossae? Like today we would think of a sort of new age cult or, or something like that. Or maybe it's just the prevailing philosophy of the surrounding society that they were being sucked into. Could be any of these things. But it seems to me, as I've kind of pondered on this this week, that there's another possibility which I think is eating away at the heart of the body of Christ globally. And it's religious nationalism. Now, if you look at the church in Africa, you see this very clearly that During the last century, there's been a phenomenal growth of the Christian movement in Africa, which has been a wonderful, wonderful thing. But people have said the problem with the church in Africa now is that it's it's about a mile wide and an inch deep. It's been this huge response at a superficial level. And when, when you see this problem is when all these civil wars break out in Africa, And the problem is when they break out in societies that are overwhelmingly nominally Christian, like Rwanda or South Sudan or other places, when there's a civil war, what people's prior commitment is to is actually to their tribe. And so you get uh, a tribal nationalism, which takes precedence over their commitment to Christ. And so when a like in Rwanda is the worst illustration, where the various tribes who profess to be followers of Christ are locked in a fierce conflict. It's not just in Africa, of course. Russia is another example. The problem is that the leader of the 
uh, Russian Orthodox Church, a man named Metropolitan Kirill, as Vladimir Putin launched his war of aggression against Ukraine, um, Kirill backed him to the hilt. He's, he's described Putin as God's gift to Russia. Um, he's spoken out so sympathetically uh, for this war of aggression in Ukraine that he's been called on by the other leaders of Orthodox churches around the world um, to back, back off from his position, which he refuses to do. Not only that, the Pope's called on him uh, to repent of his attitude and change it. He refuses because his commitment, he says, is to the glories of Mother Russia and that Ukraine historically has been part of Russia. And so this is a war which is fulfilling God's purpose for Russia to enlarge its borders and incorporate the people who used to be part of it. So it's religious nationalism, even in spite of the fact of all his brothers in Christ calling on him to change his viewpoint, he refuses to do so. But a bit closer to home, I've been reading a book recently, it's called uh, Jesus and John Wayne, and it's a book about uh, evangelical Christians in the United States of America. It's a very sobering read, actually. It's written by a woman Kristen Dumez, who's a, uh, she teaches theology in an evangelical college. So she's an evangelical herself. But she talks about white evangelical Christians in the United States. And she talks about a problem she describes as these, these evangelical Christians, which are people like us, the evangelical and Pentecostal and so on. He said they've corrupted a faith and they fractured a nation, which is a pretty extreme kind of thing to say. And how does that happen? Well, she says that basically white evangelical Christians, now this is not Hispanic or black evangelicals, this is white evangelical Christians, have a vision of a white Christian America, which is at the core of their, of their faith and their conviction. She says it expresses itself why she picks on John Wayne is that John Wayne, she says, is the archetypal hero of white evangelical Christians. Now, John Wayne wasn't a particularly spiritual fellow, but he had uh, really strong, strong views. He was for a kind of warrior manhood, which she said has become at the heart of evangelical, white evangelical faith in America. John Wayne was a gun-toting man. Now, of course, the whole problem with guns in America is a huge problem at the moment. I read this very sobering statistic the other day that breaking down of all the various groups in the United States, the group that has the highest level of gun ownership are white evangelical Christians, which means as the rest of the world look at America and think, how can they have this, this, this insane commitment to a gun culture? One of the greatest groups in society strengthening this view are white evangelical Christians.
I, I saw a couple of them talking about it, and one of them said, well, this is just the price you pay for a free society. And the person challenging them or questioning them said, well, well, there's plenty of other free societies in the world that don't have this problem with the guns. And the other person said, well, they said that, uh, you know, it's my God-given right to have a gun because the Second Amendment of the Constitution gives me a right to have a gun. In other words, my, my inspiration is being drawn from the Constitution of the United States rather than from the Word of God. And so this is the challenge uh, of, of religious nationalism. And people who are supportive of this, um, white nationalism, are not very, not very uh, sympathetic towards minority groups and are opposed to immigration. And so when it comes to choosing political candidates, sadly, evangelical Christians are choosing political candidates who are supportive of these kind of values, regardless of their own... Uh, lifestyle and uh, its con contradiction of, of gospel values. But that's all very well for Russia and uh, the United States, but what about, what about us in terms of religious nationalism? I, I think at the very least it's, it's the question of whether am I a Christian who just happens to be a New Zealander or am I a New Zealander who just simply happens to be a Christian? Where does my ultimate loyalty lie? And for many of our fellow believers in the world, it unfortunately doesn't lie with the gospel of Christ. It lies with their own particular nationalism. So this may or may not have been the issue Paul's talking about because no one really knows quite what it was. But I think it's a, it's a real issue for us today. So Paul goes, goes on, verse 9, For in Christ, he says, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. In other words, if you know Christ, you don't need to worry about any other ism. Uh, your first commitment is to Christ. The interesting thing with Paul is to wonder how much did he actually know Jesus in the flesh? Uh, he, he obviously would have known about him. Uh, he would have seen him as a heretic. Um, it's unlikely that he got close enough to him. His encounter with Jesus was an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Yeah. And so it's no wonder that he sees that in him all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. This was the encounter of Christ that he'd had, yeah. of the resurrected, powerful Christ. I, I met a man uh, a few years ago who had an experience. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this here before or not, but a few years ago, I got to meet Ahmed Joktan. Ahmed's father was the, the Muslim mufti of Mecca. In other words, he was a very, very strong Muslim leader. Ahmed was raised to be a deeply committed Muslim, but he chose to be a medical doctor and came to New Zealand to study English. And while he was in, in New Zealand, well, he was in Auckland, uh, one year it was uh, Ramadan. During Ramadan, there's the night called the Night of Power, when devout Muslims believe that this is the night above all others that you can have an encounter with God. 
And so he, he prayed that night. Some of them pray right through the whole night, but he didn't. But he prayed for quite some time and then went to sleep. In the middle of the night, he said he heard this, this wind rushing through his room. He, he woke up and he said there was this incredibly bright person that came into his room. He was terrified. He thought it was the devil, actually. It was an initial reaction. And uh, this, this man, this shining man, said to him, follow me. So he said to him, where do I find you? And he, he said, if you go to the top of the main street, you'll see this building. There was a picture there. It's actually the Baptist tabernacle at the top of Queen Street. With, and he said it looked like a law court with big pillars. So eventually he got there and he, um, he went into the building he didn't, he'd never been in a church, he didn't know what it was. He met Brian Johnson. Now, some of you might know Brian has a ministry to Muslims unlike anyone else in New Zealand. So he met with Brian for about three or four days, gave his life to Christ. He came back to New Zealand. He went back home um, with the New Testament, which um, a member of his family found. His father threatened to kill him. He came back to New Zealand. That was I met him on a subsequent visit, and I had a talk with him. He talked to a group that I was meeting with, and he talked about what he, the suffering that he'd been facing in Saudi Arabia. And I said to him, "Do you think time might have come that you think of coming to the West?" And he said, very matter-of-factly, he said, "No, I'm willing to die in Saudi Arabia because of my commitment to Christ." And I thought, well, that's like the Apostle. In fact, I felt this is more like the Apostle Paul than anyone I've met in my life. He had had an experience, just like Paul, of encounter with the risen Christ. So it's no wonder that Paul can say, in all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. And he goes on to say, in him, in verse 11, he says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You know, circumcision was an obsession for Jewish people. This is what makes some people think this was the, the issue in, in Colossae. But Paul says, well, it's not circumcision that counts, but a spiritual circumcision, a, a new birth, which is far better expressed in baptism. Now, I, unfortunately, I've found for many people who become Christians, they think, well, you know, what's the point of baptism? You know, I, I believe in this stuff, you know. And baptism is kind of seen as an optional extra. I remember one guy saying to me, well, the thief on the cross, he wasn't baptized, was he? I said to him, well, no, it's true, but would you prefer crucifixion? Um, you know. And if you, if you do think, well, you know, what, what value is baptism? It's a bit like asking what's the value of, of a $100 note, you know, probably only worth a few cents. I mean, it's, it's a flash piece of paper and it's got some really nice drawings on it and so on. Probably get a few cents for it. But because it says on it that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand promises to pay 
and so on, you've got the authority of the Reserve Bank behind it. It's actually worth just a piece of paper, but it's actually worth $100. It's a bit like that with baptism, it seems to me. It's just dunking someone in the water. But because it's done with the authority of Jesus, this is the sign. This is death and resurrection and new life. So he goes on, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I actually came to Jesus a long, long time ago, 1959 AD. Billy Graham came to New Zealand, and um, I was part of a church youth group, and the whole group went en masse to Athletic Park in Wellington. It was an amazing week in New Zealand. Billy spoke twice in Auckland, twice in Wellington, twice here in Christchurch. Huge crowds came out to hear him. I remember reading a thing in the Herald saying that what's happened to Auckland that a a visiting American evangelist can attract more people than an all-blacks test. I mean, there were huge crowds, 50,000, 60,000 people each night came to hear him. I had never heard the gospel before. I, I, I kind of believed in God, you know, in a general sort of way. But I'd never heard about being personally committed to Christ until I heard Billy that day. He talked about, you know, making a commitment. But he told a story that day. I've never forgotten it. And this is like 60 years ago. He said that one day he was driving his car through the road in Texas suddenly heard a siren behind him and he looked at his speedo and he said, oh no, he was driving over the speed limit. Anyway, the cop pulled him over and he said, "Uh, you're driving above the speed limit. And he said, yes, yes, I know. He said, follow me. He said, follow me, bud. I remember that's what he said to him. So he followed him through to the nearest town. When they pulled up outside the barber's shop, he noticed on the door there was a sign that said sheriff. So he goes in there, this, this guy, he said there's a fellow shaving some man. So he stopped, sat behind a desk and tapped on the desk with a gavel and said the court's in session. Said to the policeman, you know, what's the charge you've got? He said, I found, I caught this man speeding. And he said, how do you plead? And Billy said, I plead guilty. And he said, banged his gavel and he said, right, you're convicted and fined however much it was. And he suddenly stopped and he looked at him and he said, you look very familiar. He said, aren't you Billy Graham? And he said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, he said, it's a privilege to have you in my court. Uh, He said, I'm a great admirer of yours, but he said, the law is the law and it's got to be upheld and you've got to pay the fine. And then he said, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay the fine on your behalf and you can go free. Billy used that as an illustration of Christ going to the cross. This is what Paul talks about here, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. It's we're all indebted um, because of our sin, the price to pay. And in the gracious goodness of God, 
Jesus, the word of God, became incarnate in human flesh and entered into the very depths of our suffering on our behalf, that we could be free, not through any act of goodness that we would have done or would ever do, but because of the love and the mercy of God. And finally he concludes, having, in verse 15, having disarmed all the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, which is an amazing verse, that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the power, all the powers of darkness in the world have been triumphed over. So that was Murray Robertson, legend, pastor, speaker, teacher, leader, sharing with our little community on Colossians 2. If you want to find out more about us and what we're up to, head along to theriveropawaho.org.nz. But until next time, te roha noa me te rangi marie ki Grace and peace be with you. Thank mm-hmm. you.